And you can easily see how abortion is a sacrament of that gospel, right? Because, because if, if you're the God of your universe, then there's a rival the minute you're pregnant. And, and that rival might live if you're merciful, but has no right to it because you're the God. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Great, Nick. Well, since the three of us were together, J.D. is uh, approaching Matt's throne of most children <laughs> on the podcast. How's, how's life with five, J.D.? Well, so far so good. My my contribution and my uh, uh, is is only beginning now. Uh, Liza's in the thick of it still, but uh, she's um, healthy and recovering. And the babies were both of them were six pound two ounces, which was quite a um, sort of surprise for everyone involved because they were full term, full weight, and we were able to leave. Um, uh, just stayed two nights. So it was, um, really, we're just thanking God. It was a natural birth. So we weren't, um, Laza's recovery is, is substantial, but nothing unexpected. Um, uh, and we're, we're just grateful. They're getting, getting fatter by the day. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And so we'll see, I've got, uh, you know, so we've got, we've outnumbered the women now in the house. So we have, uh, three boys, two girls. Um, and so we're, uh, we are going as a basketball team next, uh, <laughs> next Halloween. That's already, uh, it's a big competition around here for trunk or treat. So I've got a, some jerseys being made and, um, I'm going to be the coach. Lots. I it's going to be yeah. the cheerleader. That's right. And we've got a, um, shooting guard all the way down to a, a power forward. So we're good. <laughs> right. Well, congratulations. We're so Thanks, uh, excited for you and look forward to meeting them. Yeah, man. The overriding thing in the news this last week, and the thing the internet is weeping and gnashing its teeth over, is the oral argument in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court abortion case that allegedly has ramifications for the effort to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, we're going to talk about that, the impact of Christian faith on politics, and whether or not it's a good thing for God's law to be enshrined as the law of the land. J.D., you've got two new babies at home. How have you been interacting with the Dobbs case, both personally and theologically? Well, that's true. I am personally um, was fascinated. It was quite surreal for me um, to be sitting, and I think I mentioned it actually during the conversation with Denny, um, uh, in the hospital with the two newborns listening to the oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court about um, the Dobbs case and um, sort of processing all of these various emotions. Um, in, it, was, it really hit, settled on me quite heavily because uh, I realized, you know, 1973 was before I was born, but just. Um, and so I am, we are of the generation that has um, lived under the specter of, or the possibility slash specter of um, having been aborted um, or not uh, for good reasons or not, or for whatever the whims of our parents. And we happen to have had parents who deemed our lives uh, worthy of, of living. Uh, and here we are. And, you know, we're sitting there. And I think, as I said before, we even have these two boys, uh, Garland and Scott, or I mean, Davis, excuse me, um, <laughs> We're naming them 
are um, uh, adopted embryos. You know, so these are even like the, the technological reality that wouldn't have even existed back in the day. Um, and so, so that's a long way of saying what I'm, what I'd like to at least reflect upon is the, the, the clear divide that was exhibited both during that, um, those oral arguments, if you had the opportunity to listen or even read some, um, kind of, uh, reviews of them between, um, really, I think, uh, sort of irreconcilable views about life and the dignity of individual human beings, because on one hand you had, um, almost a full-throated assertion of, of human autonomy and um, a pragmatic view of quote-unquote quality of life that could then determine whether or not someone would even be brought into existence or not. You know, there's all these sort of calculus about the baby and the desirability of it and possible quote-unquote quality of life and the, the uh, ramifications of uh, that life for the mother and all of these discussions, which are interesting to have to a certain extent but not over against the, the question as to whether or not each individual human life is worthy and distinct and, and should be protected. And so what we saw there was this divide, and then that divide was just doubled down on after the fact. You know, you had this hysteria in the New York Times, the LA Times. I mean, I was reading through some of these for my class on this past Sunday, this absolute abject hysteria about the possibility of this quote-unquote freedom being taken away and it was just remarkable to watch because we have been observing this obliquely and it's been hinted at uh, my entire life. You know, well, I mean, it, going from the, the seemingly quaint, uh, you know, Clinton-esque idea of safe abortion should be safe, legal and rare. You know, everyone's sort of shaking their hands and nodding and saying, yes, that sounds quite reasonable to uh, now the just unvarnished, full-throated assertion that unless I think this life is going to be worthy and or something I want, well, then I'm going to choose mine over it. And I don't know if I'm grateful for the clarity, but it's certainly there. I mean, so much so that you probably saw the, the op-ed about the woman that had been adopted. Yeah. And she was like, don't underestimate how traumatic adoption is. And so I think someone on Twitter... <laughs> said, uh, I never thought that I would see the argument, you know, it's better to be dead than adopted, be right, made, right. but here we are. That's yeah. where we are. And so, you know, as a father of adopted, uh, I've, you know, my son is adopted conventionally, and then these two other sons have been adopted, the second one, and I, I um, again, all of the feelings are being felt with this. And I look forward in this very strange way to this clarity being um, revealed even more starkly as we move forward, because I think we're going to have an even clearer opportunity for evangelism and ministry on the other side of this, because it sometimes it takes the shocking um, realization of what we're really talking about to bring people to their senses. And I think that when you have an op-ed saying, I think that the trauma and difficulty of life is not to be preferred over over non-existence. I mean, you say, well, uh, is there another option out there perhaps uh, that could give me some other sense of meaning and purpose in life? And um, well, we certainly have that. So anyway, that's my, that's my initial salvo. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think one interesting thing about, about the, some of the responses, I think that everyone who, I guess for the last two decades, maybe, maybe longer, has has been saying you know, your vote for the presidency has no impact whatsoever on the question of abortion. If this thing, if this happens, if, if there's some kind of 
reduction in abortion rights, if, if especially if Roe is overturned, which I don't know, maybe will. I mean, the, the, the justices seem pretty seem pretty intent on doing something. Um, and but let's say it is uh, gone forever is the argument that that the presidency has has little or no effect on on the question of life because uh, the, the, the man that so many love to hate, it, to hate will have been responsible for putting in place um, the justices who have overturned the most unjust, systematic injustice in our, I think in our history. I mean, yes. that, that includes slavery. So I think everyone who, who's making the argument is gonna have mud on, their, mud on their faces. Even if it doesn't get overturned, I think everyone that it came to the brink like this I think that argument is still going to be hard to make. Uh, it, was always, make it. it was always a disingenuous argument. It was always right. the one that said, um, you know, you evangelicals or whoever <laughs> they were talk, pointing at, whoever's right. less sophisticated than I am, who are voting for Trump are selling out your convictions. It's like, no, we are making a pragmatic choice. And as I said, even in classes, I mean, I would not preach about who we vote for, but people ask you. I said, well, you know, I am sort of a one issue voter because I think this is a, a moral theological issue that is a, quite a, a cultural divide. And if you if if, you know, whoever can whatever candidate give me a list of those judges that were possibilities, particularly given the ages of the Supreme Court back in 2016, I would have voted for without question. So this is what I'm so you give me that list of judges and we're going to make this not even Faustian bargain, a very, very considered <laughs> decision about what my importance right. is. I think the Solicitor General, not the Solicitor General, the, the, the uh, Attorney General from um, Mississippi, he said it, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but he said it best in the opening argument where he basically said, uh, appeal to the justices saying this one issue, um, not only the issue, but how it was adjudicated has poisoned the entire judicial branch. Because all of a sudden, you know, the actual democratic process had been sidestepped and and it was, you know, this fiat from this sort of ruling yeah. bench. And he was appealing even very pragmatically from a from a sort of jurisprudence prudence sense to to give the power back and 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 reset the the division, you know, which I think um, at, even if you were pro-abortion, you could at least say would might help our sort of body politic to actually have the the three branches work, um, you know, checks and balances again like they used to. You know, I don't expect to see a lot of uh, public apologies, um, you know, those quote unquote evangelicals for Biden. Remember that? Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. Where they basically said, well, he's, you know, we're hoping that he he really has a real commitment to life. Um, and we're hoping that he doesn't turn out to be as bad as he as he is, but at least he doesn't tweet mean things or something. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go ahead with the guy that has shown some um, some conviction on this and actually appointed people who who uh, at the very least seem to get something or are going to live by the convictions, their stated right. convictions. Um, I mean, you know. morally, it's not even a it's not even a let's say you had a, a, a licentious, wicked lout who who would who would end slavery and you had a morally upright guy who was all for slaves <laughs> all for expanding the slave trade don't tell me that anyone who was who was badgering those who were voting for Trump because of abortion don't tell me anyone who are, who's who's in the kind of progressive side would not take that bargain of course they would because they recognize rightfully the the horrific nature of slavery 
But but the argument they're making tells me they don't understand. Even the ones who claim to be pro-life don't understand the horrific, horrific nature of abortion. They don't get that it's a that it's a Holocaust of the, of the, the, the type that even makes the Holocaust pale in comparison as far as numbers of lives go. And so they make I, the Jesus and John Wayne argument that we're not actually telling the truth when we say that that's, that's why we're yeah. voting that way. Yeah, that's that was part of that was part of the Dude, and these are all argument and that was with her. Anytime you say to these people, no, I it really is about abortion, um, that that to them is just a lie. You're you're lying. You're not that's not you don't you're maybe maybe you don't know yourself because it's deep down it's because you're racist <laughs> yeah, and you just haven't right. figured that out. You're a misogynist racist. Um even though <laughs> I would vote for I would vote for Larry Elder Candace Owens ticket tomorrow. Like yeah. this would be fine. I'll be fine with me. Like I'll be I'll go, <laughs> I'll quit my job and work as their campaign manager. Um but but you know this is the disingenuousness of disingenuous I'm always mess up this word. I don't know this ingenuity, thank you. I should stop. I do not think you know what this word means. Um, <laughs> of the whole argument, I was just listening to a stat today that said, you know, in the yearly, there's something around 900 or so thousand abortions a year. And in comparison, there's something around, I think it was saying 25 to 30,000 adoptions, right? And I know this personally that there, it is a wait list for months, if not years. Like we were on an adoption wait list for two years before we finally decided to adopt embryos. And this is not just adoption for like, you know, healthy designer children or something. Like there's wait lists for, um, for handicapped children. There are wait lists for uh, children of every ethnicity, children who have, um, even, even people on trying to adopt children who have spent, um, you know, terrible like early years in, in orphanages and foster care system. Like there is an overwhelming desire, uh, particularly on the part of Americans to, to take the, the children um, and nurture and raise them. And, and I saw someone say recently um, that I agree with is that that's part of the reason why um, the, the reaction against adoption is, has to be the next step because I have the tweet right a, here, JD. Yeah. Read it. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. This is from Alexandra Marr quote. It was only a matter of time before abortion supporters came for adoption. The logic of abortion that wantedness equals worth can't withstand the reality of adoption, which is a promise that despite our broken world, even quote, unwanted children are wanted. Yeah, because it points out that they're not unwanted. Right. And that's the thing. Like, yes, you don't want them, but they are wanted. So if your argument was this is an unwanted child that is therefore not going to have the quote unquote quality of life, well, then that it's it eviscerates that at the very root. And and this is where we are. And I don't I, I'm I'm you know, we're we're in this amazing, clarifying um, time in our lives. And I have um, you know, I know we've been talking about it for a while. I mean, it's part of we started in the middle of the covid um, situation, but the 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 divide um is just becoming so much clearer and on the other side of this like we're not through it but on the other side of this i think we're going to see a reordering and a reshuffling of of the church of um you know confessional alliances you know sort of strange bedfellows that that 10 years ago may never have considered um you know sharing pulpits with each other all of a sudden are going to be like well you know who was who stood there and then and when and why and those are going to make um, all the difference. And, you know, I'm for one, I'm grateful for it, because as we've talked about at length, you know, having sort of seen this, this divide 
um, exist in very polite sort of sophisticated airs, you know, in the Episcopal church, you know, where the, um, you know, we were all very, um, well, polite about the, our disagreements and, but no one was going to really make a scene and no one was going to be too mean. And it was all very, um, seemingly sophisticated, but the divide was there. And then of course we got to the point where we finally, um, realized that the divide was too great and had to separate. And now, you know, some 17 years later, this is just finally making its way down to, um, you know, the, the, basically the, the, the general culture. And, you know, I think it's, it's having spoken from as speaking from people who are on the other side of it can only say that, you know, the sooner, the better, like the clearer, the better, like, let's yeah, just get I mean, on with it. The, 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 the thread that runs through all of these divides. I mean, the, the, the divide on abortion, the divide about sexuality, the divide over even in some sense, uh, the racial questions we're having it has to do with two different gospels, right? which is the gospel of self, which we've described many times where you, where you, you look within, you find value there you find meaning there, you find truth there, and then every, everything you find within is what is, is, is what matters, and everything outside of that has to change to conform to that. So if you look inside, you're gay, then everyone has to accept that, um, and you have to live in accordance with it, and that will give you happiness and joy, and that's the gospel. And you can easily see how abortion is a sacrament of that gospel, right? <laughs> because if, if you're the god of your universe, then there's a rival the minute you're pregnant, and, and that rival might live if you're merciful, but has no right to it because you're the God. And if that being, or however you want to define it, how, I mean, I, you know, again, used to be uh, the argument is this isn't really a child, but now it doesn't really matter anymore because these people think right. they, they're more than willing to admit it's a child or just a living uh, human person. Um, but we're going to kill it anyway because it's dependent on me. Okay. And, and I'm part of the one who made it. So if I need to kill it for the goods of my, for the, my, for the, my, my own good, what I consider my own good, then I have a right to do it. That's, that's, that's right. perfectly aligned with the gospel itself. Um, it's the reverse sacrament. It's a blasphemy against, <laughs> against. Well, who's uh, the Peter Grief? You've seen that Peter Grief quote going around about saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Sacrament of human, you know, that using this is my body, you know, in such a sacrilegious, you yeah. know, um, diabolical, I think that's the appropriate word way. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in that respect, Matt, it, it um, mirrors the same trajectory we saw with respect to the um, quote unquote, same sex controversy in the Episcopal or in the, in the worldwide church. Because if you remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember when people were saying, well, um, you know, the Bible, we're all trying to argue from the Bible. We just disagree about what it says. And, yeah. you know, Paul didn't mean this and the Greek says this and this, this, this. And finally they're like, well, actually we don't believe what the Bible says. <laughs> so it's like, well, yeah, that would have saved a lot of, um, you know, of our consultations and the Windsor report would never yeah. have had to be written yeah. and sort of these ridiculous <laughs> things because that does seem to be at the very least an honest place to land. And so, you know, Peter Singer, who's of, you know, the great and great infamy, the, the bioethicist from Princeton who, um, has famously advocated for a, um, a two-month waiting period for uh, children for infanticide because he's like, you know, what difference does it make? You know, at some point, you know, if you don't want the child, you change your mind. People have been pointing to his, the logic of his position as the the inevitable end of this quote-unquote pro-choice movement for decades. I mean, Francis Schaeffer pointed that out back, you know, back in the 70s and people, oh, no, 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 that of course not. You know, that's way too radical. Like we're, we're really just... Um, you know, moderates on all those positions. Like, well, there is no moderating position yeah. between life and death. You know, there's no halfway pregnant, you know, as the it's, old adage was. 
that's another thing that I think people get confused about. They, they, they confuse an argument in which you say, okay, well, there, now that we've removed this foundation, there's no reason not to do this other thing. Um, that's not a slippery soap argument. That people call that a slippery soap argument all the time. It's not a slippery soap argument. It's not, it's not just because you've gone, uh, a slippery soap argument it's, might say that, okay, because you've taken this one step to the left, well, then you're going to, you know, you're definitely, you're going to be communist like tomorrow, which may or may not happen. So there, but there's no reason for that, right? But, but the argument that we're making is, is that the, the, the philosophical reasoning that would justify abortion, especially like the viability argument, for example, there's, there's no, re- if you accept that, there's no reason not, there's no valid reason to object to infanticide. Right. It doesn't mean that you yourself will mm-hmm. then right. accept Peter Singer's position, but you will have, you're, you're exactly right, you'll have no basis to argue against um, against his his position, other than your, your sort of own subjective mm-hmm. squeamish feelings about the issue, but that's not right. good enough. So, that, you know, after the two Supreme Court rulings with regard to marriage and the sexual identity, I mean, there's, there's no reason why you can't have a throuple or, a, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's now no logical reason not to have any kind of pairing and call it marriage. I mean, it could be whatever it could be. I mean, there's, I mean, I guess you could still say it has to be within the human human realm for now, but, uh, but. I don't know that woman who was breastfeeding her cat on the airplanes uh, advocating <laughs> for some sort of consent is a complicated thing in the animal kingdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that brings up an interesting segue though, Matt, I'd be interested in your thoughts um, because it seems like you're advocating for a, a version of theonomy or um, uh, sort of God's law um, in the world um, as a standard by which we should uh, direct our political involvement, um, because otherwise, who's making up the rules? By what standard are we governed? And <laughs> so, you know, it sounds a lot like what people are calling uh, rightly or wrongly Christian nationalism now, which is, as we know, according to many of the blue checks on Twitter, the greatest threat to humanity <laughs> that has ever been conceived. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and I, they get really without angry. irony. It's unbelievable. So, what are your thoughts? Like, if you ask, what... if you ask someone who's really angry about about Christian nationalism, if you want to make them mad, ask them to define Christian nationalism because yeah. that's that's they I've seen on Twitter right now. That's that's the reactionary question. The, the reactionaries are asking us to define Christian nationalism. They know what Christian nationalism is, and yeah. seriously, I want to know what you think Christian nationalism is. The way I've seen it used most often. So your 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 like dalliance with the new apostolic reformation or whatever. You're, you're like you're like in Dragnet when they went undercover to the uh, to the bad guys. You know you you've like gone to these meetings. <laughs> so so the new apostolic okay, then the far far side of Pentecostalism, far far right side, I guess Pentecostal Pentecostalism is is, is, a, is this new affirmation, new apostolic reformation, very uh, much in line with the gospel the. the prosperity gospel and then you know, name it claim it type theology um but it's also the, the the kind of the new spice added to that sort of theology is well we're in a new apostolic age and new things are happening it's, we're, we're toward the times when christ is coming back and so god has god has raised up new apostles for us and you know like um benny hen and um he i think he's one of them but there's like 50 or 60 apostles they've named um sometimes they you do they get them they, they name them in, in absentia and they just send them a you know, note saying, hey, you're an apostle now. <laughs> um, but there's 50 or 60 of them. Okay, that's I'm, right. not, I'm not kidding. This is, you got to look into this. I'm still waiting for mine in the mail. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they have all the authority and the power that the old that the that the twelve had. So they they can speak inherently. They can you know they're 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 they are like the apostles. Um, and and so within this realm, in this new apostolic reformation, uh, Donald Trump has a huge place. He is. You know, yeah, Cyrus. Yeah, if you remember, there was an article that came out a while back about the number of prophets who prophesied his victory in the last election. Uh, like, of all the people claimed to be prophets, like 70% of them said that he was going to win. Hmm. <laughs> and only like one said he wasn't or two said he wasn't, and the other ones just didn't say anything. Um, but it was a massive loss of, of prestige. But he plays a role because they believe, yeah, he's Cyrus. Some of them believe he's Cyrus reconstituted, like he's playing the role of Cyrus, the one who, the Persian emperor who, who uh, for this, uh, yeah, yeah, brought yeah, the Jews back from exile. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, others say he's he's uh, a David. I mean, like a, a king who's going to establish, you know, God's God's rule here. In, in the U.S., so, so they, there's a lot of prophetic significance for Trump because, you know, he's the 45th president, and in Isaiah 45, you have all kinds of prophecies about Cyrus. So that's always, that's where the Cyrus connection comes in. Um, if you didn't you know, dug it's, deep, seriously, Matt. I'm not, I'm not yeah, kidding. I'm you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not kidding. This is all this is all serious stuff. Are you so, trying this on? Or are you trying to really convince yourself and us that this is the case? <laughs> <laughs> I think that guy lived in the meme with the, the like the, the posters in the back and the strings. Yeah, yeah. Each, picture yeah I'll tell you how this goes. anyway the um the um when the prophets made their mistook the prophecy things within the nar became really bad like how do you so some of some even said that he is our spiritual president um like he he really was elected he is he god elected him president but that we're now in open rebellion against against him so now that that flavor of pentecostalism that's what drove january 6th i don't think people know enough about the new new apostolic reformation especially not those on the left especially on the the progressive evangelical side because what they're doing is they're taking that weird strange tangent that i don't think we can even call evangelical and suggesting arguing that they represent the whole yeah and they they don't. I mean, there, there's some definitely some diehard Trumpers on the uh, in the in the evangelical world, but when it comes to like violent revolution and um, and you know storming the Capitol, that's 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 a very specific brand of Pentecostalism that is not representative or characteristic of the rest of evangelicalism. Mm. I wonder if you want to um, define theonomy a little bit more specifically, Chady, because I think that there are some some things that we'd be curious about whether or not they were included like stonings etc our friend uh jared jones was interacting with somebody about christendom which is i think commonly used by people in the same way as christian nationalism is like we're trying to resurrect christendom in america and jared wrote on twitter that the Benefits of Christendom are not mainly for Christ or his pride. He and she will survive no matter what. The benefits are for the world that we are called to love and live in. You're going to have an empire either way. And a Christian one is better for your neighbor. I like the idea that somebody's going to rise up and make the rules. And God's rules are for our benefit. Well, that's a disputed statement, but I, I agree with you. Um, and, you know, theonomy is theonomy is one of those terms where, um, you know, it, it's a little bit like Christian nationalism. Like the people that embrace it will qualify it. Um, and 
uh, explain it in a way that usually their opponents would reject, uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So it's so it's been a long discussion, but the the fact remains that you know the 20th century in particular, you saw an explicit um, rejection within kind of uh, legal theory and high level philosophy about uh, the, nas- the the basis and nature of of um, well law for lack of a better word uh, you know you had John Rawls and his great theory of justice you had John Dewey you had these philosophers who were trying to figure out okay if we don't believe in God and there's no sort of Ten Commandments which is the basic s- scope of things. Um, well, then how do we how do we develop a society and what basis, you know, what basis do we have, for instance, capital punishment, you know, I mean, so if you acknowledge and admit that a, that a government has the authority to take someone's life, which is a pretty big deal, right? Well, then uh, what are the criteria for that? You know, in the Bible, which is where our uh, Western civilization jurisprudence derives from, uh, fundamentally, uh, capital punishment was tied to uh, to uh, intentional homicide. You know, that was it. Like you just as you take someone's life, so your life will be taken from you. This was like first degree murder. That was the number one, you know, unequivocal question of if you did this and we can prove it, well, then you are liable for capital punishment. And then other than that, you had all sorts of other, um, uh, you know, capital offenses, but they were more um, nuanced and subtly adjudicated. But they all were based in uh, in a fairly explicit Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian understanding of of what God had spoken. And this was a real. I mean, you you go. We've talked about this before. You go down through our enumerated rights in our Constitution. I mean, the right to due process. You know, due process is is an, a miracle, and it is has direct scriptural um, uh, warrant. You know that uh, you cannot be. In the Old Testament, you cannot be convicted of a crime with just one witness. You just cannot. It cannot be he said, she said situation. Um, that's a that's a Christian idea that has been put into our um, political system uh, for centuries. Now, again, uh, we don't have to get too far afield in that. Other than to say, if you take that away, well, then by what standard? Where's the basis? And that's what we're talking about now. And even Elena Kagan, even in the Dobbs decision, essentially alluded to that when she said that the question about when life begins is a religious question. So, you know, implying that there was a, there was a, this wasn't quote unquote science and or a legal question, but more of a confession of faith. It's like, well, um, that may be the case, but so is uh, if, if we're putting the question of, of life in a religious context, well, then all of these questions of right and wrong and of just and unjust and legal and illegal ultimately are, are connected to a religious question. Because, you know, why is it wrong to steal? You know, private property, uh, some people argue private property in and of itself is immoral, you know, although because in the Ten Commandments, at the very least, we see thou shalt not steal is an implicit firm affirmation of private property, implying that there's something that you have that is not mine that I'm not supposed to take from you. And yet, according to some, the idea of private property is immoral. And so, again, that's an interesting conversation. But who ultimately is to adjudicate that and decide? Well, if you're a Christian and you make any hat tip or imply 
that we are going to, as Christian people, try to make more Christians through evangelism and nurture and raising, and then by extension vote and develop a society, a town, uh, a, a city, a, a state, a country that is in broad um, alignment with these Christian principles from a, a fundamentally religious and then by extension political uh, way of thinking, well, that is considered to be Christian nationalism. Like that's what that's what's being what's being talked about now. And so the problem we have as Americans, of course, is that however you want to dig into the hearts of the actual founders, um, which we can't, uh, it is very easy and it would be entirely intellectually dishonest to say that they were not influenced by the legal theories that were a fruit of the Judeo-Christian patrimony into the world. Like you don't have to say that Benjamin Franklin was some sort of, you know, revivalist preacher to say that he at least understood that the unique concept of individual human rights, the due process, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, these sort of um, rights that were granted by a creator were not found universally in other religions. And they certainly hadn't taken fruit and flourished, taken root and flourished in other civilizations in the way that they had in Western Christendom. And so, you know, it's it's like that meme. We're just talking to memes now. You know, we're just going we're going full circle back to the hieroglyphs. You know, it's like memes oh, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to speak. We're just gonna shoot memes at each other. But have you seen that that meme that has like the kid with the bat and he's like, you know, I'm going to tear it all down. And like he's in the next scene is like him swinging it everywhere. And then the next scene is like he just says, uh oh, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, you may want to um, you may want to consider what you're actually proposing. If you're saying well, we should totally divest the American legal system, for instance, our political system of of um, foundationally Christian principles, because. Um, the the alternative to that, which we have seen, is um, almost without exception uh, incredibly frightening and dehumanizing and tyrannical. And so that's that's what we're looking at, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that I think I, I'm I'm gonna I want to shy away, I guess, from the title Christian nationalism, just because it's been. I'm saying that's what it's being called. That's what's I mean, being I'm, called, I'm, right? With, yeah, you know, with, no, no. They're 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 they're, they're, they're doing they, they're doing the same thing. They, they, they're, that the um, deconstructionists, I like that better than woke. It's it's it has a better ring to it. The, the deconstructionists always do it. That's they take they take a scary word and apply it to a normal thing. Like so, so white supremacy, right? That, that, that's a scary word, and it used to mean it used to be applied to people who were actually hating people of other colors and wanting to establish a dominance of people with white with white skin. Uh, now it just means, you know, you grew up in suburban America and you, you so now you're a white supremacist, right? Because you're white. <laughs> but so you take a scary, scary word and apply it to a pretty normal thing. I think Christian nationalism, has, has, has they're doing that. They haven't succeeded, succeeded yet, but they, they take just the basic Christian desire to have a society that reflects basic Christian values. And yeah, that's that's Christian nationalism. That's We should make a distinction though. It's not, that, that, what you were describing is not theonomy, right? Theonomy is... Is a much more focused idea. I don't. I'm not a theonomist by any means, but but I think theonomists by some means. By some means. <laughs> right, I mean, are you? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you are a theonomist, but I mean, from from my understanding, theonomy is is a very more a much more much more systematic way of thinking about about conforming the the secular realm to to Christian government uh, by applying. The civil laws, some of the civil laws anyway, or some, some say all of the civil laws of the Old Testament 
to our culture, to our society um, legally. And I don't think that I don't think that too many people who are right now being castigated as Christian nationalists are actually theonomists. Right. Well, I agree with that. I know I, I was, I was yeah. speaking a little bit flippantly, but 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 to 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 defend some of those people to a certain degree. <laughs> The, that label has been applied. If you argue that I'm going to vote on the basis of my Christian convictions about laws that will, for instance, uh, I saw a good indication, you know, it's still in Michigan. I think this person was tweeting, adultery is illegal in Michigan, right? So is that theonomy? You know, well, you could argue, well, it certainly has its rounding in the Old Testament, but there's also a very pragmatic, and you could have a um, you know philosophical defense for the for the enshrinement of uh, fidelity within, you know, basic foundational civilizational relationship like a marriage, you know? So, I mean, again, this is where it's, 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 it's where Twitter has, has, <laughs> has so poisoned our, our discourse because there are conversations to be had that are, that are not being had, or at least they're, they're being, um, yeah, they're being, they're being shortchanged by the, you know, the quip sort of, uh, the quick 140 or whatever the blue check people get um, sort of tweets about these things. But, but what we're going to see is that there's a, there is a fundamental question. It's a philosophical, it's a religious, it's a foundational question about from where, from whence does our authority, this side of heaven, you know, legal or otherwise, where is it derived? And it says who, you know, that's the great, the great, the great question the children throw back, you know, you and what army? It's like, well, that's the only alternative fundamentally to a non-ultimately religious appeal to um, to human rights, for lack, for lack of a better word, is you and what army? Because, um, you know, it used to be, uh, at least in the West, that the army was the army of avenging angels that was coming to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, which even allowed, which even forced kings and rulers uh, second thoughts about their raping and pillaging, you know, or at least, or at least sent them on a, sent them on a uh, crusade after they finished uh, doing the hard work of um, raping and pillaging, you know? And so, uh, but now we have the possibility of our kind of ruling elite to live in a world ostensibly without any fear of final retribution. And we, I hope we don't have to live through what that would look like, but that is what, that is certainly up for consideration in the discourse around um, supposed quote-unquote Christian nationalism over over the alternative. Because what I would love to see is what the alternative, sort of full-throated, not not alternative to, uh, I mean, again, like I would define Christian nationalism as people who think that their particular country is... Um, is uh, is is superior uh, morally and religiously and before God to every other possible country that's ever had been or is or will be. I mean, that's, you know, so I don't know, I guess there are people out there like that, but I, I don't subscribe to that. And I don't, I don't, I don't actually know many people who do, but I do think, as you said before, that this question is going to, is going to be front and foremost in our in our discussions with people, and we have to um, do the hard work of defining what we mean and digging down to the issues that are actually before us. And as Christian people, I think we're going to have to be we're going to have to consider how we do participate in a, in a pluralistic political society as Christians, driven and guided as we are by broad brush the law of God. You know, like we want to protect the human life. It's like from the unborn to the to the grave. I mean, for instance. So, yeah, I think I, I see this conversation continuing to devolve for a while until the word loses its meaning. And then uh, perhaps we can 
pick it back up um, and talk yeah. about it. Like, I mean, just a little bit like racist has, you know, I mean, like yeah. racist used to be a terrible thing to be called. And then when it turns out that everyone and everything <laughs> and every person has been racist, whether they knew it or not forever, it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything anymore. So let's now talk about what the real problems are, which is that, you know, ethnic vainglory and, partici- and uh, partiality and see what we can do about making a more um, a better world for people, you know. But but anyway, so I think that's where I see the future of this this word ending. Yeah. Up. Well, it is interesting now, you know, I mean, kind of thinking about how Anglican, the specific Anglican stance might be articulated that, uh, is it Article 7, um, where we read, although the law be uh, given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men. And there's this interesting line, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received by any commonwealth. And the implication in there seems to be that Anglicans would have no problem if a commonwealth did receive the civil precepts of the Old Testament in their entirety, but we don't have to, right? <laughs> so, well, but, yeah, I mean, bishops, I mean, the Church of England has bishops in the House of Lords. I mean, right, right, just, right, like right. making laws right. uh, in their parliamentary system. And right, they're like, right. we're worried We're worried about you Americans and your Christian nationalists. Right. Like, we can't even get an actual <laughs> evangelical Christian elected to any, like, you know, yeah. national office. And there we go. I mean, that's, uh, that's apologies to any of them that are. But, you know, <laughs> now here's the, here's the, the, the problem, you know, Carl Truman picked up on this in an article that he wrote for First Things, one of one, the ones that he's just been killing it recently, um, when he talked about the idealistic vision of what our laws actually say about a country. Because, you know, he was talking about there, there are laws, I think, you know, many laws, even though they're on the books, are neither... Um, uh, prosecuted or or observed, and yet they remain um, as sort of vestiges of an ideal of what a society under our ideal society would look like. I mean, at speed limit's a perfect example. Like this is, you know, the, the idea that people do not follow the speed limit is it's clear if you're on any given street, almost everywhere in the world. And yet somebody designing that street said, well, this speed limit was the ideal speed. This is the platonic version of the form of a speeding car on the street. And this is what we believe. And so you go down the list of laws. I mean, even in the Old Testament, you know, I heard someone give a talk about the, the various stoning laws in the Old Testament, you know, and they were saying, now, listen, you know, what is uh, what is misunderstood about a lot of these is that the people were a relatively small band of people who were uh, deeply connected to each other relationally and um, and ethnically. And so you had these laws on the book, but, you know, you have to picture it not like faceless, uh, like Manhattan. Manhattan or something. Yeah. Like this is like small town, you know, like this is like. Andy Griffith. So, so in Mayberry, they have a law that says if your son is caught shoplifting, you cut his hand off or something, you know, or stoned. And then, but it's your son. It's your son. And I, and I was there when he broke his arm, you know, and I was there when his first date and he lost his tooth or whatever. And I just caught him shoplifting in my store. Well, the first thing I do is not pick up a stone and bash his head in, but I do know that that is the ultimate penalty for this way of living and this type of life. And so that is the, so we don't, the, the, the actual enactment of these laws, we don't have any um, lists of how they were actually done, but we do know that they represented the, 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 the teleos. The, the we have an example. Result. Yeah. Well, Joseph, when he hears that Mary's pregnant. Yeah. 
Exactly. Right. Perfect, I mean, perfect he, example. he doesn't pick up a stone and <laughs> exactly right. And he's to, totally, he had all the quote unquote legal right to do so. Yeah. Right? right. But what does the actual law uh, indicate in what it protects and what it punishes? This is where legal theory really hits the ground because, because that's what the laws of a society say. You know, if we are that, what are we protecting and what are we punishing? That's what we care about. And so when we talk about, you know, whatever you want to call it, theonomy, Christian nationalism, whatever, you know, Christian people involved in the legal process, we are going to have a very specific set of concerns about what we protect and what we punish. And that's going to look different than people who do not believe in God, who are not ultimately afraid of his judgment, but more importantly, are not ultimately trusting in his goodness. Because, you know, I would want laws that said, you know, for instance, honoring your father and mother, you know, that's a, that's a law. And that's not a selfish, cynical law by parents who are worried about recalcitrant children. It's about parents who love their children, who realize that if you instill them from the early age with a sense of reverence and awe for God-given authority, whether it's in their parents or then by extension, you know, other authority figures in their lives, that it will, as the promise in the commandment itself says, the days, your days on the earth will be long. The flip side of that is you say, well, you know, I don't want to instill authority because I don't believe in God. And I'm going to raise children to be their own authorities and to raise them to be suspicious of anyone who claims authority over them is simply a power hungry, you know, cynical uh, tyrants. Like, well, we're going to agree to disagree about that. <laughs> and we're going to figure out how to live together in the same society, which is as of yet an uncertain, uh, we're not exactly sure what that's going to look like, but that's what we're in the middle of right now. Well, no doubt these questions are going to be ones that we have to deal with for some time. Uh, we are going to call it a day for this episode of the podcast. Indeed, Matt Kennedy has already signed off. Uh, we do thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can do so by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes, sending us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Music